foretold. We've been looking at a Bible passage that's often looked at during this time of year, during this Advent season. It's it's a Bible passage that contains a promise that God gave to his people about what he had in store for them. Long before the very first Christmas, this promise was given and it resulted in God's people looking forward with great anticipation, great excitement, great optimism to what was what God was going to do in their lives. And that idea of expectancy, of anticipation, of optimism, if any, marks this time of year. Not just for us in Advent, but also like broader culturally anticipation, excitement. You know, it's the season of expectancy. Will Buddy the Elf be reunited with his dad? Will, his, will the Grinch's heart swell a few sizes? Will Arnold get Turbo Man? Will Ralphie get the BB gun? There's a lot of expectation. Will the guy or the girl get the guy or the girl in the Hallmark movie? I haven't seen any, but I understand that that's the plot of all of them. Um, (laughs) Expectancy. Will Kevin McAllister catch up to his family or be safe? Christmas has become a time of year with great expectation. For some, there's a lot of optimism. There's a lot of excitement for a lot of reasons. Maybe Christmas is a remarkable time and you're just so excited for what's to come. Maybe Christmas is a really hard time of year. Or maybe this Christmas, because of some situation or circumstance, this Christmas is particularly difficult. And rather than optimistic expectancy, there's a sense of worry or fear or concern for this Christmas. I believe with, with all my heart that whatever this Christmas holds for us, that the passage we're looking at today, that God's word has a great, great promise for each of us and that God wants to speak to each of our hearts through his word. By now, the passage that we're looking at that was just read, it's become somewhat familiar for us. We've looked at it. This is the third week now, but I believe there's always more in God's word for us, that his word is always living and active and longing to speak into our lives. So before we jump into Isaiah chapter 9, I want to give just a little bit more background information of this passage. I think the background context will help us feel the intensity of the promise that we're going to be looking at. We've read the last couple of weeks about this place called Zebulon and Naphtali. And, and for some of you, you may know exactly where that is. For others, you may not have a clue what that's about. So here's a map to help make this all make sense for us. A little bit of a history lesson really quickly for all of us. The promised land of Israel was divided by the 12 sons and the 12 tribes, and it was, it was divided up in them. And you can see that, right? The tribe of Judah and Reuben and Benjamin. If you look at the very top, you'll see the land of Naphtali and the land of Zebulon. Eventually, the promised land, that land was, was because of choices that God's people made, because of some of the, the bad choices they made. That was divided into two kingdoms, the northern half, the southern half. That's what will be called Israel and Judah. If you're astute, uh, an astute reader of the Bible, 
But the tribal areas of Naphtali and Zebulon had been absolutely devastated in the passage that we're reading. That area right beside the Sea of Galilee, the sea that Jesus walked on, that area right there had been devastated. We know from history and from other books and from the Old Testament that Assyria had descended upon the northern part of Israel and had taken over, decimated it, carrying people off into exile, carrying people off to be captives, deportation. And now when Isaiah writes this promise, Isaiah chapter 9, he's writing it to the rest of the nation and particularly to the southern half of the land. And I can't help but imagine what the people living in the southern half of that land must have been thinking, must have been feeling. They're like, okay, this global empire, this army, this king had just descended upon our family, our ancestors, our fellow brothers and sisters just north of us. Are they going to keep coming down? Are we next? Are they going to come and decimate our land as well? Are we going to be murdered Are we going to be colonized? Is our land going to be burnt, destroyed? The people that Isaiah was giving this prophecy to, as they were looking into the future, they had no idea what was en route for them. But there was concern. To put this in like real life terms for us, the distance of that map from where that nations had descended upon and taken over the land to the people who were receiving this promise was the equivalent of red deer to us. It's not that far. And just like the Queen Elizabeth II Highway makes it really accessible, there was a road that made it really accessible for them too. Can you imagine an army descending and destroying red deer and taking off any loved ones that you have there, saying, are they just gonna keep coming down to us? Red deer is decimated just up the deerfoot. That would be a modern day translation for us of how Isaiah 9 starts. So to a group of people that were terrified, anxious, worried, concerned, expecting potential devastation and destruction, Isaiah delivers this promise to them. And perhaps the intro will make a little more sense today. It says this in Isaiah 9. Nevertheless, There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Imagine that word being delivered to you. The boots that were used for war will be fuel for the fire. Like that had real implications for them. 
garments rolled in blood, had re- all of this had real life implications for what they were feeling. But Isaiah anchors this entire promise right in the middle by using this phrase, for as in the days of Midian's defeat. As in the days of Midian's defeat. That might be like Zebulon and Naphtali where you're like, I have no idea what that's about. Maybe you're familiar with some of the Old Testament stories and you know exactly what that's about. But when, when Isaiah says, for as in the days of Midian's defeat, that is a reference to the story of Gideon. And if you know your Old Testament, you know well that the story of Gideon is a powerful story of God delivering his people. I often call the story of Gideon the real 300 because of what happened. Judges 6 through 8 tells us the story. Judges, it's the story of an army that descended upon God's people. And the Bible says this army was too large to count. There were too many soldiers, way too big, way too vast, and they descended upon God's people, and they were descending to wipe them out. And then God called Gideon. It says, Gideon, from the lowest tribe, I want you to face off against this army. And maybe you know the story. Gideon's like, yeah, no way, I'm out. God's like, no, 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 Gideon, I want you. And Gideon's like, well, if you really want me, you got to prove it. And he leaves some cloth out and he says, I want that to be wet and everything else dry tomorrow, God. And then it happens. And Gideon's like, that must have been a fluke. Someone's pranking me. So he's like, I want the opposite. The cloth dry, everything else wet. God does it again. And And Gideon's like, fine, I'll go. I'll go, God, I'll go. And so Gideon wrangles up these soldiers and he's like, all right, guys, God is calling us to go to war against the Midianites. I know we can't count them. There's way too many of them, but God is with us. He's calling us to go. So he wrangles up this army, this, this group of people. And then when they're all gathered, they're getting ready to go to war. God's like, Gideon, there's too many soldiers on your team. Send anyone who's scared home. Can you imagine? You're outnumbered by like infinity and it's like, hey, if you're, if, hey, if you're a little scared, you can just go home. Sweet. <laughs> just picture everyone booking it. So the army gets pruned. And then God says, anyone who doesn't drink water the right way, they can go home. And so Gideon does this test to make sure they drink like this to keep their eyes up so that they're ready for war. Not like this, exposing themselves. Eventually there's 300 soldiers left. And then God's like, all right, 300 soldiers. Now we can go to war against this army that's too vast to count. And so the 300 soldiers in Gideon, they get, they get ready. And God's like, oh, you guys, you don't need those weapons. Here's some trumpets. <laughs> this is a true story. Judges 6 through 8. And then he gives them some jars. It's like, perfect. Now you can go. So 300 soldiers with some trumpets and some jars. Go to war against an army that's too big to count. Picture that scene. I try to think of like a modern day example of what that would be like. And I I looked up the smallest country in the world. It's Vatican City. There's 800 citizens in that country. Imagine if Vatican City had to strap up some skates and play Team Canada in Olympic ice hockey. That's like kind of similar. But then the Vatican Cityites, citizens, um, they're like, yeah, we're going to give you candles instead of hockey sticks. 
That's kind of like what this must have felt like. An army too big to count versus 300 people with some instruments and some mason jars. And yet God intervenes and delivers them. And by the way, the land that Gideon saved from the Midianites was the land of Naphtali and Zebulon. The land that Isaiah 9 is talking about here. For many of us, when we think about what lies ahead of us, when we think about the future, there can be a sense of worry or uncertainty. The nation of Israel and Judah, they were wondering, what about our land? What about our homes? What about our future? What's going to happen here? And I think, given this moment in history, more than a few of us are concerned, what about our land? What about our society? What about our homes? I need a home, or whatever the, 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 the worry might be for you. Maybe it's for loved ones here or somewhere else in the world. I think when God, through Isaiah, anchors in the middle here, as in the days of Midianite, it's a reminder to us that one of the keys to making our way into an unknown future is to trust ourselves to a very known God. When we look at the future with uncertainty, we can look at certainty at what God has recorded for us and how he's acted and what he's done. This moment of the Midianite victory for the people that were receiving Isaiah chapter 9 was not detached from them. That was the, 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 their spiritual family tree. And it was the same place. And for us, that is also true. The God of the Midianite victory just as a reminder, is the God of this church. The God that called Gideon is the God that calls us. The God that Gideon obediently followed into an unknown future is the same God that invites us to follow him into an unknown future. And the God who promised to be with Gideon is the God who promises to be with us. And the God of the promise of Isaiah chapter 9 is the God of the promise for us today. And the promise in verse 6 that we've been looking at, it says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. I want us to try and like imagine, you know, put our, putting ourselves in the togas of the people who first would have received this, this passage. You're in southern Israel. You're in Judah. Your family land has been absolutely decimated and you're wondering if you're next. You're terrified. You're desperate for a word from the Lord. And the prophet Isaiah comes on the scene. He says, guys, I've heard from God. I have a word specifically for you from the Lord. And then he says those words, a child will be born, a son will be given. Can you imagine how confusing that must have been? It's like, no, 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 Isaiah, like they're literally up the road and a baby is what's gonna happen? 
That doesn't make any sense. How's that going to help us? They could be here in days. What is an infant going to do? What is a child going to do? What kind of promise is that that the Lord is giving to us? And then the verse continues. He says, it's not just any baby, not just any child. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. What is what does that have to do with, with our world? A couple of weeks ago, we spent a lot of time in Wonderful Counselor. Last week, we looked at Mighty God. Today, we're specifically going to be looking at Everlasting Father. What kind of promise is an Everlasting Father in a world of uncertainty and fear, of chaos and complexity, of expectancy that is both good and perhaps challenging? Why will this child be called everlasting father? Now this phrase alone, everlasting father, for some of you that are theologically savvy or you know, perhaps you're really dialed in and really listening, you recognize that phrase creates some really unique theological questions for us. Some of you have maybe even noticed this over the years. Why is the promise of the Messiah called the everlasting father? Why is Jesus the Son called Everlasting Father. And you're like, that, 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 that's a theological challenge for us. And so for the next few moments, we're going to do some theology. And I know for some of you in the room, you're like, oh yeah, this is it. And I know I might lose some of you in the room. So if we could just lock the door. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> I'm joking. Uh, if it helps, for those of you that are like, ah, Santa is going to be mentioned here. And if you're like, what? St. Nick's going to make an appearance. Uh, that's a teaser for some of you. Let's do some theology. How do we know Isaiah 9, the starting point? How do we even know that this is about Jesus? How do we know? I mean, I, we live on this side where for years and years we've heard people preach this, but how can we actually theologically make a case that this promise of a child and a son is about Jesus when it was written to people in time and space? Well, in Luke chapter 2, when the angels appear on the scene, what do they do? They quote this passage and they say, this is Jesus. There's a theological case and solid ground to rely on this being about Jesus as a starting point. So now we're like, okay, so Jesus is the one being mentioned and he is going to be called everlasting father. Okay, that's challenging. So then we go to the next Stage And, and I, I don't have the time, unfortunately, to go really into this. So if you're really into theology, here's some fodder for you for the next month. When it talks about child, that refers to ancestry, necessarily for the first readers. A child is part of a family line. So you can talk, what does that mean? What does this theologically say about this child and the family line that they're a part of? And then it talks about we'll be born. Well, humans are born. And so this child will be born from a family. What does that tell us about this child? And then it says a son. So then the first readers will be like immediately, okay, so the family line is carried on through here. Well, when you read the genealogies of Jesus, it's the family line of David, the royal family line. Okay, so it's a child. There's ancestry. It will be born, so it's human. It's a son, so the royal line of David will be passed through him and then given. Well, you can only give something that already existed. And so this talks about... God's existence and then him coming into the story given as a gift that existed before. There's some theology for you to think about for a little while. 
whole lot of pondering that can be done there. But we know that this son that will be given, that will be born, this child, will be called Everlasting Father. Now, a son being a father is not that complicated. I am both a son and a father. In fact, every father is also a son. That's not the hard part. The hard part is Jesus is the son of God who will teach us to pray to the father, what theologians will say, the first person of the Trinity. You can, you can hold on to that and sound really fancy at some point if it's helpful for you this Christmas. The complexity is not that Jesus is called the son. It's, well, what does this have to do with the father? And there's a complexity there. And it's really, really important for us to learn how to talk about this properly, to understand this conversation. It's important for us to be really clear on and accurate in how we talk about Jesus and how we talk about God at all. And uh, one of the most um, dramatic moments in all of the church's history, our, like the church, not just us, but like all time church, is trying to figure out this difference. Who is God the Father? Who is Jesus? Who is the Holy Spirit? And if you go back, this is where St. Nick is going to be coming in pretty soon. Truthfully, truly. Um, one of the most influential and, mo- <clears throat> and famous moments in the development of this theology, of this conversation around God, happened at, at an event called the Council of Nicaea. Some of you are like, oh, you're losing me. Council of Nicaea. It was a church gathering where church leaders, theologians, scholars, pastors, bishops, all kinds of people descended together to say, we have to clarify what does God's word say about who God is. So they gathered and they had debates and conversations. Who is God? We know the Lord is one. Okay, so the Lord is one. We know this. But then Jesus, the resurrected Son of God, is God as well. So what does that tell us about this God who is one? And then, and then, and then the Holy Spirit is referred to in the scriptures as God as well. So what do we do with this conundrum? How do we talk accurately about God And there was this really big conversation, this really robust debate, just trying to provide language and clarity describing who God is. And at the Council of Nicaea, there was a man named Arius. And Arius was a man who kept saying things like, Jesus wasn't really God. And he kept kind of combining and mixing together the Son and the Father in really unhelpful theological ways. And, 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 and he was kind of causing a commotion and, and just muddying the waters on who God is. And at this church gathering, 100% true story, St. Nicholas was there. The Saint, the OG St. Nicholas he was there. And um, that is a fact. You can look that up. Council of Nicaea, St. Nicholas. Some scholars say when Arius was off spouting out this stuff and, and mixing up the idea of who God is, St. Nicholas got so frustrated, he walked up, walked across the room to Arius and hit him. I want a Christmas song about that. Jolly old St. Nicholas hit Arius. I don't know, like, there might be some, like, okay. We don't know for sure if St. Nicholas hit Arius. But we do know he was at the Council of Nicaea. And we do know that the Council of Nicaea developed what's called the Nicene Creed, which talks 
about God as Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. As an essential dogma and reality for the historic faith of Christianity. And so that's why we got to be important, we got to be careful that we don't call Jesus the Father that we're taught to pray to in the Lord's Prayer. We don't want to make that mistake, but we also don't want to neglect God's word and shy away from it when it says Jesus will be called everlasting father. So then the task for us today is what does it mean that Jesus will be called everlasting father? What does that mean for our lives? Why would God choose that language and that imagery to describe his relationship with his people? Why would that be what Jesus is known as? Why would this baby be called Everlasting Father? Well, in short, it's a descriptive reality about his character and about the way the Messiah would relate with us as his children. Before I go any further in talking about Everlasting Father, I want to take a moment and just recognize that for many in the room today, The idea of an everlasting, loving, protective father is a hard one to imagine. It could be that talking about a loving father brings about all kinds of emotions and memories that you would rather not have to acknowledge. For some in this room, talking about father reminds you of wounds or hardships For some, it's hard because while a father should be good and kind, with loving and present, supportive and protective, your experience is anything but that. And instead, from your father or from someone fulfilling that role, there's there's actually just great pain. Perhaps a sense of abandonment, abuse, or coldness or neglect. And so perhaps hearing Jesus called everlasting father creates hurdles for you. And I I want to acknowledge that. For some in the room on the absolute opposite end of the spectrum, the complexity is not an absent or difficult relationship with father. The complexity is that you had an amazing dad, which can actually limit the otherness of our heavenly father because you limit your understanding of what a dad is because of what you experienced. And I know in this room, maybe just talking about dad in general is really hard. Maybe this is your first Christmas without your dad. Or maybe it's the 50th. I just want to acknowledge that it can be really complex to talk about this idea of Jesus as everlasting father. And yet Jesus does say everlasting, or God does say that Jesus will be called everlasting father. And so I want to talk about that and acknowledge that God chose out of every possible title, every possible relationship, every possible word to designate his relationship with his people as everlasting father. That's how God chooses to relate to us. Good fathers understand that there is a responsibility and an obligation to care for their kids in appropriate ways. 
And I think there's actually a shift here in Isaiah chapter 9. Because when you think about God as wonderful counselor, well, every counselor I've ever met with, I initiated contact. I went and set up an appointment to have a conversation about something. Mighty God is just the, 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 the existence, the, the ontological reality of who he is. It is who God is. He is mighty. Here, everlasting father, there's a responsibility switch because fathers take responsibility and initiative to care for their kids. And, and God is saying, <clears throat> I will take responsibility to care for my kids. I'm putting this title on myself and I'm choosing to love and care for my people. I will, be, I will be present for them emotionally. I will share with them. I will love them. I will support them. I will, I will care for them and nurture them. I will be present. And God is taking that responsibility on himself for you. To be there for you. Which means for all who are in Christ God has chosen to take the designation to be your father, which means he has chosen to take responsibility for you, to love you, to be there for you, to provide for you, to do all the things that a good father does. That's why Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come for you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be closer than a brother. Our everlasting Father takes ultimate responsibility to be there for us. <clears throat> Our everlasting Father commits to doing that for us. And in a world where there's all kinds of failures, even from the good dads, our everlasting Father is utterly and totally reliable. And while I'm on the subject of complexities, I also just want to say this to the fathers in the room. Most of the messaging and most of the media out there, most of the approach to fatherhood is really cynical, really sarcastic, and an absolute dilution of the call that you have to your kid or kids. Most of the time, dads are mentioned out there, it's portrayed and used as a punchline. I was researching this week, Google Analytics, Google Trends, and I was looking at what are the words commonly associated when dad is searched. And you can pick parameters throughout time, through different generations, different eras. And, and I was looking at what are the words that most commonly are associated with dad Google searches or father. And as I looked up the results, I got emotional in my office at the absolute sadness that was revealed by that search. The words that are commonly associated with dad in no way reflect who God longs to be in our world. Punchline. One example was this. I, I, what are moms known for? The answer was give us life, nurture us, support us, Care for us as we grow from babies to adults. They teach us, take care of us, and give us advice. May that be true amongst us. When I searched that for dad, some of the top things that came were this. Being on their phone. Awkward dances. Eating. Dad bods. Rough. Dad jokes. Do you see a difference? 
Please hear me well. I'm all for honoring and celebrating the mothers in the room. And and you know, Jesus actually says, I want to care for my people like a hen. Mother hen cares for her. Like Jesus does take on some of those qualities as well, but hear me well. I want to honor moms, but I could not strongly enough say to those that have the calling and privilege in your life to be called a dad or a father, your role is important in how you care for those in your world. It's such a key calling that it's how God has chosen to relate to his people. And your service as a dad is a representation of Jesus himself. And I don't want for a second for us to accept the cultural narrative of absentee, distracted, diluted, lethargic, diminished, deadbeat dads. I don't want that to be our reality. Let's embody the way that God cares for us. Can we not, let's, let's not accept anything other than our outright best for King Jesus and how we parent. Jesus takes responsibility for caring us, for caring for us and being there for us. <clears throat> and then uh, we read this at the very end in verse seven. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And I can't help but notice when Israel, when God's people were looking at a king approaching them with destruction, approaching them with potential calamity, when they were like, there is a king just up the road who might be coming for us, Isaiah comes on the scene and he says, I want to lift your eyes to the real king who's coming. Don't look at the king up the road. Look at the king in heaven that is coming. God allowed Isaiah to see the future. And then he wanted God's people to anchor their lives on the known future of the king on the throne who was coming. And I know for a lot of us in this room, this season is a really hard time. I know there's a lot of complexity represented in this room right now. And there is a lot of potential kings in the not so distant future that might be bringing pain or devastation or fear or worry our way. And I just want to today say, lift your eyes to the real king on the throne. Lift your eyes to the king who is coming. When Isaiah gave this promise, it was 700 years until Jesus was born. And if we could all see 700 years from now into the future, we will still see Jesus on the throne. And may that impact and influence how we live right now. I believe God's word still is calling to each of us to lift our eyes to the king on the throne which is why we will be making our way to communion in a moment, to lift our eyes to the king. Every child I know, and certainly mine, um, feels that their parents keep them waiting too long. Um, Sometimes that might be true. Other times it's just because it seems like time doesn't really exist to kids, at least kids my age. Um, Waiting feels like an indignity to them. And for some of us, you might be wondering, well, why is God taking so long? 
It's been a long time, Kyle. You don't know what's been going on. 700 years when Isaiah gave this promise before Jesus was born, and if you keep going after Isaiah, you'll see there was a whole lot of other books of prophecy given. And if you keep going to the very end of the Old Testament, you come to a book called Malachi. And when you come to the very end of Malachi, you'll see chapter four, and then you'll see verse six. And then you'll, speaking of kids, there's some artwork from mine. Um, I did not plan that, but worked out. Uh, At the very end of Malachi, chapter four, verse six, it ends. And then you see this, the New Testament. And it's really easy to flip the page. But that flip of the page represents 400 years. Four centuries. God's people were waiting. Still in the silence. Where's God? Does he not care? But at just the right time, Jesus came to his people. And I don't know where you may feel like you're waiting these days. But if you do feel like you're waiting, our God is never late. And we can trust the process. It might be hard, it might be painful. But unlike every earthly dad, our everlasting Father is perfect. And we can trust Him. And if we could see 700 years from now, we would see Him on the throne. And we can anchor our current reality in that. We can trust Him because we know what He has done. As in the days of Midian's defeat, God is still alive, living, and active. As in the days of Isaiah's prophecy, God is still moving. As in the days of Jesus walking on water, feeding the 5,000, as in the day of the resurrection, as in the days of the church growing by thousands from one sermon, as in the days of fill in your story, Jesus is still establishing his kingdom and bringing it to bear on this earth. And I'm just here to testify to King Jesus and the kingdom he brings. He's building on earth in our midst. And how he still cares for us as an everlasting father should. Jesus came as God promised. And from that moment until this one, with utter justice and righteousness, Jesus is bringing his kingdom. And so I want to invite all of us that are facing an army on the horizon, a devastation in the distance, to lift your eyes to the king on the throne. The king on the throne who became flesh, which is what Christmas is all about. Jesus coming and his birth. That's what Christmas is all about. And and while Christmas is beautiful and there is a peace and a hope-filled beauty about that, I don't want us to miss the reality that Christmas would not be celebrated if it wasn't for Jesus' death. If it wasn't for the cross, we wouldn't celebrate Christmas. Because uh, without the cross, he's just another person who came and was born. But with the cross and the resurrection, he became our everlasting father. Not just because he was born, but because he died and resurrected. Without the cross, Christmas would not be celebrated, which without Christmas and without the cross, communion would not be celebrated. But because of who our everlasting father is in our lives, in our midst, we celebrate communion here. 
a symbol, a promise, a sign of our God's responsibility and obligation and love that he has for our, us. And also us remembering what he has done for us. The one who is now called our everlasting father. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks for it, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The baby that was born grew to be a man whose body was broken for us, and we remember King Jesus. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread... And drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. As surely as he came that first Christmas, King Jesus is coming again. And we proclaim that together today. There will be an end to war. There will be an end to famine, disease, destruction, and devastation, to exile and humility, to abuse and neglect. But there will never be an end to King Jesus' reign. We have been foretold. We have been promised. He will reign on the throne, establishing it and upholding it with justice. And I'm just here, and we are all just here today to exalt that reality and to remind ourselves that he wants to do that in our lives right now. The baby who comes at Christmas is the God who fights for you, is the God who takes responsibility for you, to care for you, to be present for you, is the everlasting Father that loves you more than you could ever begin to imagine. Bless you, church.